Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Anand Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm an actor-writer with an interest in the intimate. We want to fill the gap in the nation's sex and relationship education through interviewing guests on how we relate to our bodies when it comes to sex, identity and, of course, pleasure. This week on The Pleasure Podcast, we welcome actor Papa Esiedu. He's been named a BAFTA Breakthrough Brit and won huge acclaim for his performance as the RSE's first Black Hamlet. In Michaela Cole's series, I May Destroy You, he plays the sex-positive Kwame, a gay man whose assault is ignored by the police. A beautifully nuanced performance. But I'll always think of him as the man I met at the RSC, one who, in one memorable show, played a singing seal as my understudy, a role I'll never let him forget. Papa grew up in East London and was raised by his Ghanaian Christian mother after his father left for Ghana. Her upbringing had a long-lasting impact which made him the man he is today. We talked to Papa about growing up in the 90s, poor and black, on a London estate, and what happens if your only sex education is learnt from lads mags and fumbles behind the bike shed. We look at how lad culture can forge desires that don't match up to the girl you fancy in geography, and the unlearning men must do to discover their own tastes. We touch on how black men are pushed towards hypersexualization and how the Me Too movement has impacted the conversations men are now having. How willing are they to engage with past behaviours? I think it's a kind of non-starter talking about sex education in the classroom in this country, at least, or at least in the 90s, noughties. I learned what I learned in the playground, you know, and with your friends and I guess a bit on TV and film and... Yeah, books, whatever. The majority of mine came through, like, girls chatting about this sort of mythical hand job and how uh-huh. you might give that. We don't know what we were doing, what what would feel <laughs> exactly. nice, and they didn't want to say what felt <laughs> nice or what didn't feel like. They just, just get on with it, say that you've done it, and then you've got your little score point, like, yes, I've received, I have given hand job, and then you move on, and, like, no <laughs> one talks about how painful it was or that you almost yeah. tore someone's foreskin off or something. <laughs> It's beyond the blind leading the blind, really. It's a lot of people kind of like like fumbling about without really an idea of what goes where and what who likes what and whatever. And people coming out the other side being like, yeah, yeah, I did it. I did it. Yeah. And like like basking in the glory of like this like very kind of DIY, like unpleasant sex act. Did it feel like at school, like amongst the boys, that there was a lot of pressure to be sexually active or to have those mm. school points? Or, or e- even if that meant actually telling some fibs? Yeah, and I kind of think that starts from a weirdly young age before it's even about sex. It's about, like, those lies start when it's like, yeah, yeah, I've got a girlfriend, but none of you know her. And, like, (laughs) I met her on holiday and, like, she's, like, 
really fit. And she's always older. She's always older. And she always lived abroad. And (laughs) and no one's got a photograph of her. She's still in Tenerife or wherever, Lanzarote. Like, (laughs) who lives there? Do you know what I mean? (laughs) And yeah, I feel that culture starts quite early. And I I, I think it's kind of weird because I can't even really remember the point where as an early teenager, older, old child boy, whatever you call that, um, <laughs> that you go from, like, seeing girls as just girls and just, like, annoying and, like, not boys to these things that you obsess about and become these objects of your attention in that different way. I, I honestly don't remember where that seesaw moment happened. Seesaw, I say, that kind of, like, turning point moment yes. happened. Yeah. Um but I do remember kind of like feeling obsessed at one point or feeling, but like, and not necessarily in like a healthy or like positive way. Like, yeah, a lot of it is wrapped up in pressure and fear and expectation. Was it with real girls, real life girls? Or was it initially <laughs> with um, sort of celebrities or, you know, mags and that kind of thing that that, that kind of obsession started to take form? Can you remember? I never had an obsession with celebrities. I never really got down the route of like, oh my God, can you believe there is such a woman as Jerry Hanna Kelly Brook or whatever. Or whatever. Know, Kelly Brooke. Yeah. Did, did yeah. you have a poster on your wall of, of any of them? I didn't have a poster, but I did have, a, at a certain age, I did get a magazine like, probably every week. I do remember having like loads of zoo magazines, I think they were called, and nuts magazines which weren't quite, like, porn, necessarily. Like, they weren't, like, hardcore, but they were, like, that kind of thing that I, I don't even... Like, do you, do we have that kind of stuff right now? No, I think it all, there... it all ended sort of... It feels, like, relatively recently. At, at the nuts, there was a lot of sort of skin on display, though, wasn't there? It wasn't yeah. quite a flesh mag, but there was a lot of flesh visible. Yeah. In a way that, like, right now kind of feels really absurd but maybe that's the internet because like at these times we're still thinking about like died up internet and like the internet porn industry wasn't what it is now so maybe that kind of like say it like that middle bracket of the market I don't know I remember um someone came to school once with like playing cards that had like proper naked women on it not even like nuts naked like you could see like women's like bits you know like and like it's not it's not sexy when it's on a playing card you know but like there was still like a kind of like wow we don't get to see that and we don't have access to that so whoever it was that had the deck of cards was kind of like top of the food chain in in that that bit of the playground i want to ask about growing up in the era of the lads mags and lad culture because you know i think Lad culture is just so, it's so, so, I find it so fascinating. And it's something that um, I think is get, having a real light shone on it and has been since the kind of Me Too era. When we look at the kind of attitudes that were um, made very normal for a lot of men and women when it comes to objectification or when it comes to the kinds of um, bodies that they're allowed to find attractive yeah. and the sorts of um, activities and the sorts of language that is foisted upon them to use or encouraged, taught to them to Mm -hmm. use. And I wonder whether now it feels like that was an education that has to be unlearned 
yeah. or whether you felt at the time that actually, yeah, you could look at the mags and look at the pretty bodies and whatever, but actually it didn't have a long-term impact on who you are as a guy in terms of your tastes and how you might perceive women or speak about women. And this is absolutely not about saying anyone is a bad... Per- I, again, it's never that binary thing of saying that people are bad people who read those magazines. I mean, it was like, it was everywhere. It was everywhere. It was part of our culture. It's what made us, you know, young men and women at the time. It, I mean, it really, really was the kind of overriding young culture, sex, sex culture, really. So my question is, did you feel like it did have an impact on you and tastes and language and the way you perceive the world and did you feel that there had to be any undoing of that along the way 100% I think so because it's happening at like such a formative stage and when you're discovering sex and your sexuality you are kind of like trying to impose those beauty norms that you're being shown and you're trying to somehow kind of like transpose them to the actual young women that are in your lives you know so like you're judging whether someone's attractive or not by the size of their tits or which is so very difficult because these are people who mainly have you know a huge enhancement exactly in the the bloody 90s exactly without without any judgment at all but like it's definitely doesn't feel like a logical comparison to a 15 year old girl who's like in geography so like you definitely are finding yourself trying to mold the two ideas deals together and it's unsuccessful and I do feel like some men try to do that work to kind of like unpick like well what did that what does that mean about like my sexuality now or like yeah what kind of person I'm attracted to or what I judge to be beautiful and what I don't like for me like there definitely were moments where I had to kind of like debunk that also did it ever feel sort of frustrating as a young man, like going, this is what I've been looking at for however long. Uh-huh. And this is, this is Stacey in geography. Uh-huh. And they do, they're not matching up. And how, when will I ever find my Kelly Brook? <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Brook's getting so much airtime on this podcast. Um, uh, did it it's ever... because I had an ex who had a huge poster of her above his bed and I, I was so insecure about it. <laughs> It's really more about you than Kelly. Um, I don't think it's frustrating because, like, I th- I just think that, like, especially at that time, you just like decide that the girls that are more like Kelly Brooks are great, and the girls that aren't are less great. So, like, I don't think frustration was the word, but like, obviously, like, I never found, I I actually never found that person. So, like, I, yeah, I guess maybe maybe that was what my teenage angst was about. Did you get a lot of negativity about sex from sort of adults or other people? Yeah. Um, I, my mum was... <laughs> so my mum was um Ghanaian, single parent, Christian woman, amazing woman, like the most important person in my entire life, but like was like so so scared that I was going to get someone pregnant at the, from the age of like 12 or something like t- 
terrified and was just like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, just don't have sex. It's, you don't need to, like, you just need to study. Anyway, it got to a point where, like, obviously you start getting girlfriends and it, it got to a point where she could no longer kind of be like, you're not going to have sex because it's going to happen. And by that point, she was just like, whatever you do, like, she's like, wear, like, two condoms, three condoms, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, because you know what? Girls, they'll lie to you, they'll say they're on the pill and they won't be on the pill and they'll get pregnant. Like, it was, like, again, like, it's that thing of, like, sex being, like, just so potentially disastrous, which, again, like, blows it into something, I think, more psychologically heavy and terrifying, I guess, or if you buy into that as a way of thinking. So, yeah. And it kind of removes all the sense of pleasure and fun from it, doesn't it? Mm, mm. And one would hope that actually, as if you're growing up in a teenager and you're exploring things, that mm. that should be joyous. Mm. And, and I appreciate, yes, you, you might need a, a couple of minor provisos about, yes, STIs, yes, pregnancy, but actually more information about relationships and, and, and how you might get there and enjoy it and, and negotiate your first boyfriend or girlfriend, because that feels like a big emotional event when it happens. Where do you think your mum's fear came from? And I think it's shared by many parents. I mean, it's like the 90s, noughties, that was sort of, it did feel like that was the era of the of the teenage pregnancy. Life being like poor and black and living in 90s London is that like hard enough without inviting extra challenges, I guess. So I yeah. think it's more about survival than it is about like rational kind of fear or anything. Yeah. Did you feel um, a sense of feeling like you had to be like the man of the house? I definitely felt that I had to grow up quicker than... Because, like, there were times when I was quite young where I had to, like, be at home by myself, you know, because my mum had to work certain jobs that weren't compatible with school hours or definitely not, like, holiday school hours, you know? So there was definitely a thing of, like, figuring out how to independently live from a young age. But, um... I don't think I had to be the man in the house because, like, my mum was so amazing that I think that she very much took on, like, that kind of dual role in the way that a lot of single parents and particularly single mothers are capable of doing. Obviously, all young boys that don't have their dads around kind of, like, fantasise and actually, like, pedestal the, the idea of a father. But, like, other than that, I don't think I really f- felt, at least at the time, that I was lacking... That. During teenage years, we often find kind of role models or the person that we put on a pedestal is often like some movie star or some sports person that we idolise and plaster our walls with. And I wonder whether you had any of that. There are people that you like, you know, there are like footballers that you like because they're good at football or there are like people on TV that you like because they, they make you laugh. But, like, I don't think there was ever really anyone that was like, wow, that the way that guy is as a man makes mm. me want to be like him. Yeah. I think this sounds really interesting because it sounds like a really different experience of role models in terms of when we had a conversation with Richard Gadd about his experiences of role models, which he, because he particularly um, mentioned his father, Digger, mm. in terms, and a sense of masculinity and, and learning about masculinity mm. from his dad and, and, and what that meant for him. And so mm. it's really interesting to hear from you that actually there wasn't a specific person you know, derived perhaps your sense of masculinity from uh, the fact that your mother was able to play all those roles. Mm-hmm. I often wonder if it's harder to unpick any like issues you have around your identity and particularly your masculinity as a man. I wonder if it's harder to come to terms with that when you've got a father that is close 
in proximity to you that you're constantly observing and kind of aping and learning from and kind of like inheriting all of their kind of like good things and their bad things you know so like because I I suppose didn't have that as a template like in my face all the time and this is me painting fatherhood in a really bad way but like you know I didn't have that so I've never had to kind of like reject that or challenge that or you know come to terms with that. So were you in touch with your dad at all? Yeah, I was. I was. To be fair, my dad also died when I was 15, but like lived in Ghana. And like, I would kind of like go and see him like every few summers type thing. And sometimes he'd come in and we'd like talk on the phone and whatever. But like, yeah, so it was a kind of like, again, like as a young man, no matter what your dad does or wherever they are, you're like desperate to love them and desperate for them to be amazing. And like, so there was, there was... I definitely didn't have a sense of abandonment at the time or a sense of, yeah, absence even, which, like, maybe, like, in retrospect has more of an effect. But um, I can't can't really say he was, like, a role model to me. Do you feel like there were particular expectations on masculinity? Like, about how emotionally available when you were growing up did you feel it was acceptable to be? I think that's where people are most stunted and I definitely didn't feel at that age like school is just hell really isn't it and it's a fucking (laughs) war zone and like any sign of weakness is capitalized on by someone else and and used against you you know and like weakness I suppose weakness and strength are terms that can be applied to like ideas around masculinity and to be strong is to be Um, stoic and to not show emotion and to persevere and to be weak is to give in to your emotions and to cry and to you know tell someone you love them or whatever the binaries of our ideas of masculinity and femininity really applied at that age and like yeah homophobia I still remember like it was an insult to call someone gay before you even knew what that meant yeah. So you'd be like, your pencil case is gay. That to me is so messed up. It's not even connected to a kind of etymology of it, you know? It's just like a complete doubling down on the fact that homophobia is right. At my school, there weren't any people who were openly gay or that openly identified in any way apart from, like, the conventional heterosexual. Yeah. And... There were no, like, people who identified as trans or anything like that. And there were loads of people who have subsequently felt comfortable to share that as an, an expression of their truth. So it definitely wasn't a safe environment. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it, that as an actor, where your real strengths are your emotional accessibility and vulnerability and empathy and expression of your internal landscape, that that could come out of this early conditioning that you know most men get of being told that to be strong is to be silent or is to not feel i really don't think i was able to reject that until i i think probably quite late when i was like 21 22 or something like that and i guess like acting is a part of that you know you're like asked to go to certain places or to have a curiosity about characters availability emotionally which obviously invites you to also ask those questions of yourselves you know also there's the thing of like growing up in a circumstance that is difficult it is also like practically useful to 
have a certain steel or a certain kind of like motivation to continue perseverance you know that allows you to um survive i guess in like hostile environments so again it's not as like black and white as being like one is good and one is bad because i'm still like proud of like having come from where i've come from and achieved what i've achieved and like a lot of that is due to kind of like just like rejecting like the idea of giving in to something that's difficult or rejecting the idea of allowing emotions to overwhelm you, you know? So, like, it is complex in terms of how I feel about that, especially looking backwards when I was younger. When you were dating as a late teenager and then in your mm. early 20s, perhaps, um, do you feel treated sort of differently or people behaved to you differently um, in terms of their expectations as a black man? So, for example, when I was on uh, dating I, and I was using sort of, uh, very early dial-up gaydar, um, there, there would be comments, for example, like, no fats, no femmes, no Asians. Oh, wow. And by Asians there, they meant Indians mm-hmm. uh, and, 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 and sort of South Indians. Um, and so that had a very formative experience on me in terms of what I was allowed to ask for. Mm-hmm. And there's an expectation that all Asians were just bottoms or there was, mm-hmm. there was lots of things that were expected um, mm-hmm. or, or, or they were more feminine or whatever it was. Yeah. And I found that incredibly frustrating because whilst it did fit to you know, occasional bits, you know, I, mean, I, I, I can be, be partly feminine, that's fine. But actually it didn't fit all of my behaviours yeah. and, and, and how I saw myself. And I found it really frustrating to be sort of narrowly rammed in that box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I definitely think there, there was and is a thing about like black men being like push toward this like hyper like it's it's so fucked up actually because it its roots are really in like eugenics and in violence and murder of black men historically but like this thing towards like hypersexualization of like black men being like having like massive dicks and like going out there and they're gonna come and they're gonna fuck your daughter and they're they're like oh wow they're so big and muscly and that kind of stuff and that kind of it's still kind of is a thing that's propagated today. Like there's a Man United or there's an ex-Manchester United football striker called Romelu Lukaku and the United fans used to sing a song in praise of him um, about how he had a massive dick. And they would be like, you're amazing, you score loads of goals and you've got a massive dick. Those weren't obviously lyrics, but like let's imagine something a bit smarter in that rhymes. Um and obviously, like, he came out in response being like, yeah, love that the fans love me and thanks for singing about me, but can you not sing the song about me having a big dick? Because, like, I find it, it makes me feel weird and, it, yeah. And people couldn't understand, like, the thing of, like, but we're saying you've got a big dick, you know? That's, like, <laughs> the best thing anyone could ever say about anyone. Like, why are you getting so fucking angry about, like, being told you've got a nice big dick? And that kind of, like, really, like, blinds yourself to, like, yeah, the historical significance of that kind of assumption and expectation of black men. Yeah. yeah. It's apparent, for example, in a lot of the pornography, and particularly in sort of the, the gay world, there is a significant fetishization of black men, um, mm. particularly in the sort of cuckold pornography where the BBC mm. acronym of, of the big black cock, black man, um, comes in and replaces the pathetic white husband right. and, and has sex with his wife. Yeah, And it's all about, as you reference it, from sort of a slave owner um, sort of uh, concerns or worries that they are physically less uh, functional than, than their slaves. Yeah, again, well, I don't think it's even worries. I think it's like an excuse to kill black men because it's like if you if there's like 
a, a black man who's like living free and he's kind of like doing business or whatever. If you decide that like black men are untrustworthy and they rape your daughters, then you can get that person arrested and hung. You know, so like there's no kind of like tiptoeing around it. It's like that's a kind of like thought process that was particularly devised in order to murder people. Mm. And that now trickles down into like sexuality and into pornography, but actually into like day to day kind of like expectations and um, associations um, that we kind of think are kind of like harmless, you know, like if you're on Tinder, if you're a dark skinned black woman on Tinder, the likelihood of you getting loads of matches in comparison to a counterpart that is light skinned or white or whatever is so much lower. And how that doesn't kind of highlight the systemic prejudice in terms of like what our beauty norms are and how that affects in real time um, expectations in terms of sexuality. It's so clear, you know, and I don't think you can talk about the former in terms of what's happening in the olden days, let's call it. What you can't talk about that without talking about this. The two speak to each other. Yeah, I mean, talking to Kate Lister about sex and colonialization. Mm. Just the idea that actually the colonies were sold as these places of hypersexuality mm. so that soldiers would want to go there and mm. harm and kill and use women mm. out there. And these women like Sarah Bartman, for example, would be brought back to the UK and exhibited mm. because of their different body shapes. And, 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 and I think you're very right in the sense that this pervasiveness of um, difference and objectivity hasn't stopped. It's yeah. still there. Yeah, and, like, we can't think of it as being harmless or just, like, preference Mm -hmm. now, you Mm -hmm, know? mm -hmm. Be that true or not, we can't think of it outside of the context in which it was born out of. I think a lot of white women uh, often are guilty of making of doing those sorts of jokes about, you know, attractive black men and talking about, you know, how well endowed they might be. It feels like that's a real trope. I, like I hate the way that it's somehow compli- it, it feels like it's complicated by the fact that oh but it's a compliment you know that's it, it it shows to me like a profound lack of empathy or ability to think about what someone else's experience is like ready to pop the question the jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. May I ask about the impact of Me Too on 
the conversations that men are having. I mean, do yeah. you think, uh, does it seem to have had any effect, for example, I appreciate it may not be directly on your friendship circle, for example, yeah. but has there been a change, do you feel, in the way that um, straight men talk or behave about women? Yeah, and I, I definitely don't think, like, when I say about my... I, I'm not trying to present my friends or the people that I hang out with as, like, these angelic, super woke, like, <laughs> um, like supermen, you know, who are just, like, amazing, like, never guilty of, like, misogyny or anything like that. It's def- That is definitely not the case, and I don't think that's even the case for myself. Um, I think, like, there are a lot of things that are coming up in this Me Too world, I guess, and some of it is great kind of like work towards awareness or making changes or whatever. But I think a lot of it is also about paranoia and anxiety and a kind of tension about saying the wrong thing or thinking the wrong thing or getting caught, you know, getting caught in something that you can't control, you know, as if like there are things inside us that is just like my brain is not capable of stopping myself from saying this thing or objectifying you like that, you know, and like, <laughs> guess what that is, what conditioning is. And I suppose it's because it felt like such a sensational and sudden event that happened, even though if we talk about these issues, they've been in existence since the dawn of time. Like we're getting to a point as a kind of like modern social media respondent society where it's like a thing happens and then suddenly the whole world is changing, right? I kind of felt a bit like that about like Black Lives Matter, like suddenly like racism was a thing apparently to certain people in a way that apparently it wasn't before you know so yeah I think there's a great deal of anxiety and um stepping on eggshells that is that a thing yeah yeah Yeah, it is have you found yourself having chats with with men about or mates about this stuff and like analyzing past behavior I, I know that there's there's a brilliant group Oh, I'm going to, I'll put it in the notes because I can't remember the name of it right now, but that a few male actors have told me about where they meet up and talk without um, shame, without um, uh, a judgment of each other, talking about this anxiety, exactly the sort of anxiety that you're talking about now, where they feel like, actually, I need to look at my past behaviour and talk about this in a safe environment where I can really analyse this because I'm having to change my whole philosophy or or I'm having to change the way I, I see myself, even if... I think I'm a good guy, yeah. but I've. But maybe there's been certain things that have been in grey areas that I'm not proud of. Yeah. Do you feel that those sorts of conversations are happening amongst you and your, your friends, particularly? Um, yeah, definitely. But I question like how able people are to be like brutally honest with themselves because idealistically and philosophically, it's something that people can feel comfortable talking about and discussing, debating. You know, but like when it actually comes to I did this thing and that means that I wronged or hurt that person and I never did anything to write that. I think people will do whatever they can to wriggle out of kind of like seeing themselves in that light or it's difficult to, you've got to have real courage, I think, to be able to to do that is courage the right word yeah no absolutely i think it's really difficult to go and explore yourself and genuinely turn over every rock Mm. and then examine what that means about you and your past behaviors and actually things that you may well have done that actually are outside the boundaries of acceptability Mm. in some cases you can argue with yourself there is nuance but actually is that an argument just to appease yourself And it's hard because, like, obviously your past does speak to your present and your present speaks to your future. So, like, 
if we're living with this yeah willful blindness to our past we're kind of living a kind of false present and that's going to contribute to a, a kind of fake future or like a future that's built on like a house of sand are you seeing any positive changes in men today like such as speaking about their mental health and emotions is the pressure that we were talking about earlier to be really um tough easing even Uh, if that toughness can be helpful sometimes i think there are definitely steps being made forward but it's just like it's not easy you know it's not easy to undo like a life of conditioning and i suppose like speaking to what i was talking about earlier on about like if you are like fucking struggling and like life is hard sometimes it feels easier to bottle up or just like hold your breath until like it gets a bit easier and then you can go like that, you know? I I don't think it's for me to judge someone who chooses to do that. Um, And there's a privilege, I think, in being able to never do that, (laughs) you know? But um, yeah, I do think the conversation, for whatever that means, is, is definitely moving in a more progressive direction. Yeah. Finally, what do you fucking love about being a man? <laughs> like, what, what is, what's, what, what do you absolutely love about it? Do you know what I mean? Like, what is great? What, get, what are the pleasures a of being a man? Massive heart. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I really like, I, but I, I, you know what? I really love male companionship. I think it's this lockdown that has actually really made me think about how much I love my mates, like my boy mates. Like I miss them so much, like over this time. There, um, yeah, there is, I think there's something like really beautiful about like certain like male male friendships that are specific to and are kind of built around like our kind of mutual discovery of like our manhood and our kind of like quest to understand our masculinity together, you know, like there's, there is something amazing and I feel necessary about those relationships and like they're, they're incredibly important to me. So, that's one thing that that I love about being a man, being able to have like friendships with other blokes. Thank you for listening to the Pleasure Podcast. If you enjoy this, do share, review, and subscribe on iTunes. It really does help other people find us and helps to give the series a boost. Please do give us five stars. Thank you to Acast for hosting us, Matt Peaver for editing us, Ollie Birch for the music, Gilad Vysotsky for the graphics. Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on the relationship we have to our bodies, sex, and of course, pleasure. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.